Welcome to Triangle 411, the pulse that moves the Triangle world today. It's a vibrant collection of stories, medical breakthroughs, what's trending, social good, events, and boundless other adventures. A conversation pit of comedians, authors, chefs, sports figures, experts, the common and the uncommon. Here's the host of Triangle 411, Mary Innsbrucker. Hi, friends. Today, we are going to explore Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's disease is the sixth leading cause of death in the United States. I did not know that. In fact, more than 5 million Americans are living with the disease. While most are familiar with this illness, Triangle 411 wanted to delve into the positives as far as hope on the horizon. We have two guests to help us with that today. One is a person who actually is in the early stages of Alzheimer's. And then also Catherine Lambert, a regional director with the Alzheimer's Association. And we're going to begin with Catherine. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you so much for, I love the title, The Hope on the Horizon. Thank you so much for helping us share that information. So, so, so we are going to focus on the positive. So just lightly, you know, in brief, we should at least visit a little bit of the background of the disease. Can you explain what Alzheimer's is? Absolutely. And I think one of the most common misperceptions is that it is the same as the, um, the normal aging process where none of us are quite as sharp as we were yesterday. That's normal. Um, this is not normal aging. And dementia and Alzheimer's, biggest question I get, dementia is really a general term for the decline in mental ability that's severe enough to impact daily life activities. And then Alzheimer's underneath that umbrella is one type of dementia. It happens to be the most common form of dementia. Okay, so if someone gets this illness, what is the average length of time uh, that a patient might be under the influence of this disease? That is a great question and, and a really difficult one to give a specific answer. The reality is that in our brain, before we start uh, with the first symptoms that are visible and noticeable to us and others, the changes could have been happening for 15 to 20 years in our brain. And so how long will someone live with this diagnosis largely depends on where they are diagnosed. So a big role that the association is playing is advocating for early diagnosis. If you have concerns, ask early. Someone diagnosed very early in the process could live for many years with this disease. Someone who's diagnosed much, much later where it is incredibly apparent to many that there is a challenge they may only live with the disease for a few years. Hmm. That's interesting. I did not know that. Um, hmm. Okay. And, and here's a little side then when you mention there's normal aging, uh, you know, a little lighter on the memory end and a lot of other areas too. Um, it, how do people differentiate that then? How do they realize if it's just regular, you know, regular something happening in the aging process versus having a dementia problem? So, you know, I ask myself that often. I think one of the things we've probably all done is we've lost our car keys. Um, a, a big differential in that would be if you have lost your car keys and you can backtrack to where you might have left those. 
I was in a hurry. I threw them in a place I don't normally throw them. And you eventually backtrack to that. That's normal aging or normal distraction. Um, not being able to come up with the exact name of someone or a specific word you're searching for. And I know I've had this three hours later, you remember the name. That is normal aging. This is more complete disruption. So um, memory loss that impacts daily behaviors. You don't remember those names. You don't remember those appointments. They don't come back to you. Mm. Challenges solving problems. Um, the inability to complete familiar tasks, like maybe putting a grocery list together um, or just doing normal errands, getting lost where someone would never have gotten lost before. It's really significant changes. So if someone was never good at math, and they struggle to figure out a tip on a bill, probably not an area for concern. But someone who is a strong person mathematically who all of a sudden has trouble figuring out a tip on a restaurant bill, that might be a red flag. Mm, I, I appreciate you pointing those differences out. And you, and you kind of touched a little bit about one of my questions was explaining the symptoms starting at the beginnings. And eventually, tell us about what people will experience when things become severe enough to interfere with daily tasks? So, you know, no two journeys are exactly the same. Some people will experience um, more issues with um, true memory. They might have good longer-term memories. They could tell you about things that happened 50, 60 years ago, but not be able to remember things that were from five minutes ago. Some will have um, significant personality differences. Some will have... Um, more judgment issues. It, it is different with everyone, but um, as those pieces, there there is a great way that individuals early on are able to compensate for some of those things, put tools in place, you working with your loved one who maybe has the disease to do that. Um, those are ways for coping skills. And then there will come a time that um, you might need to look at augmenting. So, you know, the, the cost of unpaid caregiving that those of us that are family caregivers give is astronomical. It's in the billions um, here in North Carolina of unpaid care. But often that needs to be augmented. And, uh, you know, we may talk about that a little bit later with in-home care or residential treatments or adult stay programs. But all of those things are things that um, our care consultation program through our helpline and at the association, we can work with each family to figure out what what works today to help everybody live the best life that they can live. That's, that's great. And now, you know, I was going to circle back to, let, let's circle back to that in just a little bit, but yeah, we'll talk about that topic in, in, in a, a little bit more because again, some hope for people. Um, so, so researchers believe this is not a, a single cause disease that there might be other, uh, causes than rather just one particular thing. Can you talk to us about that a little bit? Absolutely. So, there are multiple factors. Uh, you know, many folks are very concerned, and rightfully so. They have a, you know, first-degree relative that has Alzheimer's, so the genetics of that. Uh, some types of Alzheimer's, a very small percentage, very, very small, is a guaranteed um, genetic inheritance. That is not the vast majority. That's like 2%. Um, but there is a genetic piece to that. There is also a lifestyle piece. So as we talk about that brain change of 15 to 20 years in advance, think about the things we could be doing, you know, in our 20s and our 30s that would maybe set us up from a prevention standpoint. So, you know, as I think about um, 
what's good for the heart is good for the brain. So as you look at some of those things, exercise, eating, social and cognitive stimulation, those can help on the lifestyle changes, you know, and then environment as well. So there is research, uh, a very exciting part, there is research going into all of those things, the biology and genetics, the lifestyle changes, um, as well as environmental impacts into the course of this disease. Okay. And in fact, I wanted to talk a little bit about that research. Um, can can you give us some information about the U.S. Pointer study in conjunction with Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem? Absolutely. So the U.S. Pointer study, um, it's an Alzheimer's Association study being run out of our coordinating center in, at Wake Forest University in Winston. And it is really designed to see your clinical trial to evaluate whether lifestyle interventions that target many of these risk factors actually protect cognitive function in older adults who are at that increased risk for cognitive decline. And it's the first such study to be conducted in a large group across the United States. There are five sites across the U.S., one of which is uh, in North Carolina. It's patterned after some other studies in other countries, and we want to say, does that also apply here? But it's looking at multiple lifestyle interventions, diet, exercise, uh, cognitive social stimulation, and do those things uh, target that? Because if the study proves yes, which we believe it will, um, if the study proves yes, what a powerful thing that is to be able to couple lifestyle intervention with uh, detection tools, and then if there is a therapeutic approved on the market, if you know you're at higher risk, what can you be doing lifestyle? And then if you have a diagnosis, how can we quickly apply a therapeutic to that as well? So when will the results be out on these kinds of studies? Because it, it is, it'll be just miraculous if all we have to do is eat the famous broccoli again. <laughs> that seems to cure everything. You know, if, if somebody can have this tool, whether it's environmental or diet or, you know, exercise three times a week versus one or whatever it is, when will that valuable information be available? So the results of this trial, um, it should be completed while it's two years, but two years that the participants are in and participants are kind of in a rolling um, entry into the study. And so we uh, are about a little past 50% recruited for participants. So I would say it's another two years before we have final, um, you know, report outs on this study. However, you know, and I'd, I'd love to say that we're going to get to a place that knowing that eating broccoli will pre prevent Alzheimer's disease. And I'm almost, I'm not a scientist, but I can almost guarantee that is not going to be what comes out. But I think what will come out is your ability to reduce risk and prevent cognitive decline or, or protect that cognitive function. And if we know that earlier, maybe we have even less people entering into the funnel of this disease in the future. But there are many who will say, my spouse, you know, never ate anything badly, or my loved one was a marathon runner and was in better shape than I, and they got this disease, mm -hmm. because there are many contributing factors. It's not just one. Mm -hmm. Right. And let's talk a little bit more positivity. There's a new medication on the horizon here, too. So there, there is uh, a, a drug that is an FDA, um, FDA uh, review at this point, aducanumab, and, um, you know, there is hope. Uh, a decision will hopefully be coming from the FDA about approval for this drug uh, before the summer. Uh, currently, there are medications that are on the market, but they deal with um, 
symptoms and maybe relief of some of those symptoms. They do not change uh, the course of the disease or the progression of the disease. And this is the first drug um, to get this far in in the FDA approval process um, that would, in fact, do that. So will this, again, will this be the end to everything? No, it won't. But it will be, if if it is approved, it would be the first drug available that did deal with um, progression of the disease. Wonderful. And you said maybe the end of summer it might receive approval? You know, it is, uh, the, the FDA has a lot on their plates uh, mm-hmm. in the current pandemic situation. Um, but we, uh, at this point, we expect to hear from the FDA by early June. But uh, that could change. Sure, sure. They do have an awful lot on their plate. So, um, but but again, hope on the horizon. And when you mentioned the other drugs, and again, just in brief, um, you said that addresses some of the symptoms, like in, in what way? So again, each, the, the different drugs have different uses. Like it's not a one size fits all, but some might allow um, a little more ability to focus for a period of time or um, deal with if someone is very agitated, it can deal with that. So there are some drugs that... Um, as we talk about dealing with symptoms, maybe it's more of a quality of life improvement, but it does not slow the progression of the disease. It does not delay onset of the disease. And we are hopeful for not just the drug that's currently under review, but others that are in the pipeline that can do some of those things, delay onset, slow progression, because that truly begins to change the underlying course of the disease versus, um, you know, if you get severe migraines, I'll use that example, there are drugs that help you deal with when you have symptoms of that migraine. There are other drugs that try to actually save off and prevent chronic migraines. So, you know, that's not a perfect comparison, but I would equate it similar to that. Mm-hmm. Okay. And just like this illness uh, affects different people in different ways. And, and, and from our conversation, there's a lot of like generalization and I, and I get that. And so here we go again, just in general, and I know this will be hugely in general, talking a, a little bit about the financial impact because some insurances may cover certain things and others won't. So we really can't get into that kind of detail, but just broadly, uh, just an idea of, of what folks are looking at. But I want to start with when we talk about being, you know, toward the point where things get severe enough where one might be have to go into a nursing home kind of situation, is that usually like a, you know, by that point, is that a two-year kind of thing, a five-year kind of thing? And again, realizing everybody's different. I have I have heard of, of families for whom, you know, that has been a several months. And then there are other families for whom that has been a, a multiple year um, situation that they're they're in that and and you are looking at um, conversations about does it make sense particularly in this pandemic uh, people have started to look at decisions not just financially but also how can I see my loved ones more often so are you bringing in full time in home care um, are you uh, looking at live in facilities assisted living uh, you know your your cost impact again as you mentioned depends on is there long-term care insurance? Um, what type of other insurance does someone have? But, you know, they are not inexpensive costs. I mean, a, a private room in a nursing home, you know, again, median costs um, run about $100,000 a year. 
Um, so we have our, our 24-hour day, seven-day-a-week helpline. We have care consultations there where people can talk through individual situations, individual circumstances with insurance, individual circumstances with how do you provide the best care for your loved one. Um, we also have great programs. What I would strongly encourage folks is if this is an area of concern for you, even if you're not living in this space today with a loved one, is we have a great program about legal and financial planning. And I think it's the best program to go to when you aren't dealing with this because you can start to look at what things could I do to set myself up for the best success in the future. But it certainly also has application for those who find themselves with a recent diagnosis. But um, it is a very real uh, reality that there are significant costs um, affiliated with caring for a loved one with this disease. Mm-hmm. So we need funding. And that brings me to the 29th Walk to End Alzheimer's event. So tell us about that. How can people get involved, donate, give us everything we need so we can support this, uh, the research and the treatments, et cetera? Perfect. Well, the, the research, as you mentioned, is a big piece of where our funding goes, but also all of these services, these care consultations, these programs, they are free of charge to the public, and they are offered anywhere in the United States. Um, and that's what this funding goes to. There are 600 walks uh, across the United States. The 29th largest is uh, right in the triangle. And uh, this year, that particular walk will be on October the 9th. And, uh, but if that's not your, your home, I, I, I know we, we, we all, we span a, a big geography, alv.org forward slash walk. And you can find the nearest walk to you or your loved ones and find out how you can register and get involved with that. Almost all of our walks happen in the September to November time frame. Uh, and it is a great way to raise awareness, to ask folks to support you in honor or in memory of a loved one. Um, but it is a it is an exciting time. It's my favorite time of the year, the fall, when we come together to, to walk to end this disease. Okay, one last question. Again, positivity that we started with. Catherine, will there ever be a cure for Alzheimer's? You know, it's tough to say, will there ever be a cure um, specifically? I mean, I think there's take the world of cancer. There are great treatments and there is hope when someone receives a cancer diagnosis. And I, yes, I think there is tremendous hope. And I would say more in the immediate past and upcoming future than I've seen in my entire tenure uh, with the association, because I think we have made great gains in understanding the basic biology underlying this disease. How does the brain work? What goes wrong in Alzheimer's and other dementia? So we're, we're finding ways to um, have tests. You know, you think about how easy it is to know you have high cholesterol, you're at a greater risk for a heart attack. You have high blood pressure, you're at a greater risk for a stroke. What if we could come up with a simple test that would tell us the exact same thing around Alzheimer's? That's being studied and actually pretty far down the road. We have some therapeutics that we're very hopeful for that could change the progression of the disease. And then we've got this great information about lifestyle interventions, things we can be doing early in life to set ourselves up for better success in the future. So I'm very hopeful for knowledge and information and us talking about the disease. And that's huge. That has not been the history of talking about Alzheimer's. Thank you so much. We'll close on that note and get ready to to go to our next guest. But thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Speaking of staying positive and hope for cures, today we also have with us 
Jay Reinstein, who was diagnosed with younger onset Alzheimer's disease in 2018 at the age of 57. Jay enjoyed a 25-year career in local government, working in several cities across North Carolina. Most recently, he was assistant city manager of Fayetteville, managing over 1,700 employees until his diagnosis led to his early retirement. Jay, thanks so much for being here and sharing your journey with us. Well, thank you for having me. So I'm not going to ask that senseless question (laughs) journalists are famous for inquiring, how did you feel when you got the diagnosis? I think, you know, that's kind of silly. But instead, I do want to talk to you about the nitty gritty. What was the first thing you did when you heard? How did you cope? What were your first suspicions something was wrong? What steps did you take as far as work and home life, et cetera? So, so let's just start at the beginning. What were the first signs that you experienced that you hinted something wasn't quite right? So what I, one of the things that I uh, first realized, I was speaking to a uh, group of uh, citizens and one of the citizens asked me the departments that I supervised, and I drew a blank. I had six departments, couldn't remember the departments. I also was uh, meeting with my uh, city manager and city attorney about uh, recent hurricanes that we had and some of the federal legislation and the um, uh, uh, work that I was doing on these uh, uh, projects. And it was like I was drawing a blank. I could not remember the details. So it was at that point I really decided uh, I was making more lists. And I thought, this isn't normal. I thought maybe information overload. So it was at that point I decided to uh, call Duke and uh, see if I could uh, talk to a neurologist. Okay. So after you went through all the testing and you got the diagnosis, uh, what was the first thing you did when you got the word? Well, when I got the word, I remember uh, sitting down with my wife and, and Dr. O'Brien. And uh, when he said, we think it's mild cognitive impairment, but I'm leaning more toward Alzheimer's uh, disease, it honestly was um, a punch in the gut. I mean, I was not necessarily expecting that. And um, uh, my wife, I remember, was crying. And, uh, you know, it was, it was really devastating uh, for both of us because it was not what we were expecting to hear. Mm-hmm. And uh, I knew it was going to be a uh, life-changing moment for, for the two of us. Um, so it was uh, it was pretty scary. It was pretty scary. Mm-hmm. So now your plans for working 10 more years and retiring at 65 were dashed. And I wanted to talk a little bit how you handled that. And, you know, did you try and hide it from your coworkers and others at first? Or did you just, uh, you know get right down to business? How did you handle it, Jay? Well, at first, it wasn't easy. Um, uh, You know, there was a lot of conversations with my family about, um, you know, do you go public? Do you retire and just sort of go away quietly? And um, after about a week and a half of, you know, talking through it, um, my doctor was very clear. He said, you really need to tell your employer, you know, you're in a leadership role in the organization. So I remember talking to our HR director and the uh, city manager, and I told them about the diagnosis and not sure what I was going to do or what I could do. And what I heard from both of them were was really music to my ears because I remember the city manager saying to me, he said, Jay, 
You've been in this organization for almost six years. You're part of a team. We'll go through this and work through it with you. And that, when I heard that from Doug, it was the opportunity for me to really sort of work with the organization and uh, come up with a plan. And we did. We came up with a uh, a plan to sort of transition out of the organization, but it was sort of on my terms. And that was just uh, really an amazing thing. It was really a huge weight off of my shoulders. That's wonderful. I'm glad that happened for you. Um, so, and, and I know you're in the early stages, so this may be a premature yes. question, but you know, are you, is your family having to navigate daily challenges yet or what's your plan to do so when that happens? Well, you know, for, for, for me right now, um, I'm still able to drive. I'm not able to drive in the evening. Um, I do require, uh, a lot of lists and a lot of, uh, notes on my calendar of things that I need to do. I have post-it notes throughout the house. To make sure I take my pills, to make sure I take a shower, uh, to lock the doors, don't leave the stove on, things of that nature. Um, those are the, the, the big things for me. But, um, you know, I also have those issues that I deal with, uh, you know, with reading retention. Uh, it's difficult for me to read a book now. So I've really tried to focus on those things that I can do well instead of focusing on those things that I'm not as good at anymore. Short term memory. Not great, um, but I'm just trying to live life, you know. And and I, it, it's I don't want to paint a picture that everything is great, but I also think it's important that with this disease that I put a face on it that there's hope, and I get up every day thinking that um, I have a lot to do, and I'll do it with a positive attitude, and that's really what I'm doing. Now, I'll tell you, that's probably the best medicine that uh, anybody could have in this situation. I did want to, I want to get into your advocacy in just a short bit, but first, there must be some fear that you have. Uh, and I'd like to talk about what's your greatest fear and then oh, go yeah. back into the hope. So what's your fears? Well, um, my fear is the progression of the disease. Um, I see some people in my support group that appear to be progressing faster than I am. Uh, I'm afraid that uh, I don't want to be a burden to my wife and daughter, my and, and my other my other two kids in, in Georgia. Um, um, I don't I don't want to be that person that is unable to communicate and to be around people. Uh, I'm I'm afraid of what it can be. Um, and you know, with this disease, you know, we just don't know. I, I'm so far, I've been fortunate. I'm, I appear to be progressing slowly, but you know, the, the fear of, um, the inability to communicate, uh, the inability to be a husband and a father. So how um, do you cope? Yeah. How do you cope with those fears? Well, um, this might be some good I advice. Do, I support, yeah. I mean, the support group I'm in uh, through Duke and the Alzheimer's Association has been amazing because it's an opportunity for me to vent um, with other people living with the disease. I'm also in another uh, group. It's a national early stage advisory group. I actually came off that, but we still meet every single Wednesday night at 8 o'clock on Zoom, 
and we just sort of have fun. We talk, but we also talk about the struggles we have. And I think being able to talk about it and vent and let folks know that we've had a bad day because I have those bad days, you know, and I, unfortunately, I get very frustrated when I go on to work on a, uh, you know, I'm on the computer and I can't remember how to cut and paste. Or uh, I go to a gas station and they, when you put your credit card in, you got to put in your zip code. I don't remember my zip code. So those are the kind of things that um, infuriate me, and it seems to be happening more and more. So coping, I think it's being able to communicate and talking to other people living with the disease and um, and talking to my wife and daughter. My daughter, it's easier. My wife is still struggling with the diagnosis. It's, it's been a very difficult, uh, you know, two years for us. It really has. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So not an easy answer. And then part of it, you know, the, the other thing I would say is, you know, I take anti-anxiety medication, which has helped me tremendously. Um, and then I'm taking two other medications, uh, Aricept and Amenda. And I think that has helped me focus more effectively where I was having difficulty focusing. So it doesn't address, there's no cure, nothing to slow the progression but it does address the symptoms. So it's sort of been a godsend to me. I'm glad that you brought those up because, again, that just offers people that might be facing this a little bit of hope to know there's even there's these kind of medications that exist. And I I think you're also seeking enrollment in a clinical trial, aren't you? So I've been in several clinical trials. They're not uh, medication clinical trials. It's more research clinical trials. Uh, I was in a retina uh, study at Duke where they look at the size of your retina, and there's supposed to be some science to say that if your retina uh, is smaller, then uh, there is some connection where they can say, well, a smaller retina means potentially uh, a neurological or cognitive issue down the road. And they're saying Mm -hmm. that if we can uh, use that uh, study, to potentially uh, let people know at an earlier age. Um, I've been in some other uh, studies with computers to help people with different um, devices who have um, uh, Alzheimer's or uh, uh, MCI, um, and then some research studies with some students across the country talking about end-of-life stuff, um, how I want to... uh, um, deal with end-of-life issues with my family. So mm-hmm. those have been the type of studies I want to get in one of these clinical trials, and I wish I could have been in the uh, most recent clinical trial with uh, aducanumab, that, uh, that new drug that mm-hmm. they're trying to uh, get approved. Yes, we talked about that earlier. So, um, so, so if I could, and again, I'm just, I'm just, I'm not trying to be nosy. I'm trying to, to, to offer no. support to folks that might be facing this. Cause you mentioned that your wife is having a hard time and rightfully so. Um, yeah. are there support groups for her or anything that helps her Absolutely. get through it? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I will tell you this. So uh, the story, um, uh, when we went to the first support group uh, with, you know, that was sponsored by Duke and the association, uh, I went with my wife and daughter. And um, initially, as a large group, the caregivers started talking about um, the experiences with their loved one. 
And my wife just was unable to emotionally handle the stories about the progression and some of the issues that these other families were dealing with. And um, what I remember the social worker telling me is she has to do it and participate when she's ready. So she has not been going to the caregiver groups. My daughter goes every other week. Um, my wife and I talk about it, uh, but she is just not at that point where she wants to be in a larger group and discuss issues. She's met with some other friends who have loved ones uh, with the disease, but not in a large group setting. Okay. And we've talked about therapy uh, and, and considering that, you know, for us, I was in therapy for probably about a year and a half uh, once I got the diagnosis, which was extremely helpful to me. But, you know, again, it's, it's people work differently. And uh, the last thing I want to do is pressure her to be in an environment that she's not comfortable in. Mm -hmm. And, and it is, everybody has to, to go at their own pace with these kind of things. And, um, otherwise they're counterproductive in a way, but so, so your daughter, I'm glad she's taking it a little better, although I know she's probably struggling too, but what did she say to you when you told her? She was, she was afraid, um, you know, because we're very tight and I think this has actually gotten us closer, but she was so afraid that our relationship was going to change. You know, we, we both like to kid around a lot. And I think her biggest fear is that, uh, uh, the dynamic or our dynamic was going to change. Um, and she was afraid and she was sad. I mean, she Mm -hmm. was really sad for a while. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, you know, I just let her know that let's, let's just try to live life now and we'll deal with things when, you know, they occur. But I think it was really difficult, but she's been so strong and positive and really advocated from involved in the walks, involved in other Alzheimer's activities. She's traveled with me to um, speaking engagements that I've had outside of the state. So I think by me telling my story publicly and being public with it, I think it's helped both of us a lot. Mm. And she's educated herself about the disease as well. And uh, um, I think, in a sense, it's it's been an interesting situation since I was diagnosed that uh, we've become closer. We've become closer. Isn't that something? Well, all these little tidbits you're giving, you know, just get educated, go to support groups, get therapy. Uh, try these these uh, these medications. I mean, it's just been so helpful for our listeners. And I guess I just want to leave because uh, we're short on time now. What would sure. be your advice to others facing this disease? I would say that you know everyone has to do things uh, you know uh, their way. Uh, for me, I think it's important. We have an opportunity. Um, if you can be public and talk about it, uh, advocate any way you can, work with your state legislators. I'm an ambassador now with for Congressman Price, so I'm doing everything I can to try to get the funding necessary for research. But I think the most important thing is live life, uh, enjoy life, do the things that you can do well, and try to not focus on those things you can't do so well. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, most importantly is, uh, understanding that, uh, it's a, it's a, a terrible disease without a cure, but try to make the best of it 
and surround yourself with really positive people. I love that. And I think we'll close there. Thanks so much for being with us, Jay. Oh, thank you. And it was a pleasure uh, joining you today. Time for our nonprofit spotlight. And today I'm actually going to talk about a little charity that I founded called Spare Some Change. Spare Some Change is a group of community-minded people who do random acts of kindness. And right now we're trying to meet the need of the food shortage caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. I invite you to please join us in the Pantry for the Pandemic campaign to put food on the tables of those in need. And, and, and guess what? We can do this in a COVID-safe way. All you need to do is simply place an order with any online retailer that can ship groceries such as Amazon, Walmart, Target, etc., Order non-perishable groceries in any amount you wish, and rather than have the items shipped to your home, have them shipped directly to Dorcas Ministries. So you're checking out, instead of your address, you put Dorcas Ministries, 187 High House Road, Cary, North Carolina, Two seven five one one, and I'm going to put that address in the description notes. Hey, this is using a COVID-safe delivery system where you can still spare some change in the world without any of the concerns associated with getting the virus. Now, the campaign runs between February 17th and March 5th. So please get your orders in while additional Dorcas staff will be on hand to accommodate the increase in food. Since 1968, Dorcas Ministries has provided compassionate assistance to area residents to empower people to become stable and self-sufficient. That's Dorcas Ministries, 187 High House Road, Cary, North Carolina, 27511. Well, it's time to high-five and say goodbye. You can go to any podcast platform and hear all kinds of stories, let's say, on Heroes. We've had some Heroes segments. Face Mask Warriors, Survivor Corps, a group trying to eradicate COVID, Halos for Heroes, and there's even a hero that's a Purple Heart recipient that's a Labrador retriever. So check those out. I'm Mary Innsbrucker for Triangle 411. Today, dot, 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 empower changemakers.